Acts chapter 1. Let me read uh, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days Peter stood up among the brethren, the company of persons was about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man had acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the Psalms, Peter says, May his camp become desolate and let there be one, no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during the time of the Lord Jesus, as, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And when they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas taken aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Seven years tending sheep. Seven years of chasing predators away. Seven years of sleeping in the cold. Seven years of rubbing oil on their greasy little heads to keep the flies off. Seven years to, uh, is how long Jacob, in Genesis chapter 29, worked so he could marry the love of his life, Rachel. It says this in Genesis 29, Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face, and since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I will work for seven years if you give me, Rachel, your daughter as my wife. Seven years. Now Sarah is much more valuable than any Rachel would be, but I didn't work seven years. It's amazing what will happen, what you'll wait for, what you'll work for when you're in love. And this is a good picture, this picture from Genesis 29, of really what's going on with the apostles in this first chapter of Acts. With not just the apostles, but the Jesus followers. Probably all of whom who had seen Jesus resurrected. Jesus had given them a promise. He had said, listen, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until, until the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, and then you'll be my witnesses. I want you to wait, Jesus says to them. And waiting for something that they were longing to see happening. God's presence with them, God's kingdom expanding throughout the world. So what does it mean to wait? 
Well, it means to do what Jacob does. It means to kind of do the work that prepares you for what you're waiting for. And this is what we're going to see in Acts, the rest of Acts chapter 1. I want to give you kind of just two ways that we wait on God's promise of the work he wants to do through his spirit. The first thing, hopefully these thing, both these things become pretty obvious to you, but the first thing is this. Waiting is a prioritizing of corporate prayer. That is, us praying together for the promises of God. We, we see in, in, in verse 12, it says again, that they returned to Jerusalem after this promise, after they saw Jesus ascend into heaven, after the angels, those two angels said to them, why are you staring? The same Jesus is going to come back again. They returned to Jerusalem in obedience to Jesus to wait for that promise to come. It says they're a Sabbath day's journey. It's about two-thirds of a mile. And when they get there, they, they go up to this upper room. So in other words, what they do is they decide, okay, if we're going to do this, if we're going to wait on God, let's go to this common meeting place. And it's important to recognize what's happening here, okay? This is really, listen, more about commitment than it is about convenience, they're meeting together because they're committed to wait for what Jesus has promised them they're going to experience. To wait to what Jesus promised the Father wants to do in and through them. They're committed to this. And because they're committed to this, they say, let's meet in a common place. It might not be convenient, but it's a place that we all know of. And it's also important to recognize that their desire to, to do this in obedience to Jesus was not about their personal benefit. It wasn't about you really get something. There's, Jesus didn't kind of spin this by saying, you guys should really pray together, because when you pray together, you're going to really experience me. You're going to feel this great thing from me. You're going you're to find purpose for your life. You're going to have your best life now. None of that stuff was spun. <laughs> he simply said <coughs> to wait for the promise of the Father and he encouraged them to do, do so prayerfully. See, this is more about a corporate calling than it is about a personal benefit. And this is important for us to understand, guys. This is why we pray. Cray came up and led us in some really thoughtful, uh, uh, spirit-led prayers. This is, I, I was thinking as he was praying, I was thinking about this and agreeing with those prayers and thinking these are the things we should be praying about. And we weren't listening to those prayers so we could go, oh, let's hear a really dynamic speaker pray. Or, or yeah, yeah, someone can do the praying for us. We're listening to those prayers because we're meant to agree with those prayers because we believe this is part of what God calls us to. Lord, it's, it's a commitment that you want us to have that we're praying for your kingdom come, your will to be done. And so we want to seek you for this. And so this is what they're doing. They're prioritizing corporate prayer at a common, a common meeting place. But they're also doing, listen, they're doing this as a very, very diverse group. We, we see again in the second part of verse 13, where it says, it begins to name who is there in this upper room. It says, there, there was Peter and John, there was James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Obviously not Judas Iscariot. So there's the 11 out of the 12 apostles are there. Now, why is it important to think about these guys? Well, they're there on purpose. They're leading the way. They're, they're setting the example for the rest. But also, listen, it's important we don't forget this is a very eclectic group of disciples. The apostles were really diverse themselves. You had guys like Matthew the tax collector. 
right? Be, being kind of included in the same list as Simon the Zealot. Matthew, who's kind of like really pro the Romans. That's how he made his living. Simon, who wanted to literally violently overthrow the Romans. And Jesus calls them both. And here they are together seeking God for his kingdom to come. There's just a, some guys we don't know hardly anything about. Some guys we know lots of stuff about. But this was an eclectic group of Jesus-trained disciples. But also, this was a group of very generous and faithful women. And, and let's not underestimate this. I think in our modern day of, of, of rightly promoting equality among the sexes in our culture, that's a good thing, that's not a bad thing. But we forget how unique that is. Like this, this wasn't the norm in first century Palestine or Jerusalem. This wasn't the norm. The norm was women just be quiet and go cook the food and we'll do the rest of the work. But the women are there praying. The synagogue setup would have been the men there and then outside would have been the, the, the women and then outside even more would have been the Gentiles. But here they're in one room praying. Now it's interesting because when, we, when I say that these are generous and and faithful women, I do so because Luke made sure that we knew this. In Luke chapter 8, here's what we read. We say that Jesus took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who, who uh, had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven de demons, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. These are women who were happy just to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, and to be used by Jesus just through their generosity. But also in the very end of Luke's gospel, we read this. We read that as his body, Jesus' body was taken away after he was crucified, the women from Galilee, that includes those listed in, in, in Luke 8, uh, they followed and they saw the tomb where Jesus was placed, and they went home and prepared spices and ointments to his, anoint his body. But by the time they finished, the Sabbath had begun, and so they had to rest as, the, as required by law. In other words, they were preparing to faithfully honor him at his death. These are the women that were there praying. Also, in, in verse 14, the latter part of verse 14, here's what we read. In verse 14, we read also, there's also Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, that's Jesus' brothers. And we've mentioned this before, especially when we were in 1 Corinthians. We mentioned the witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. We mentioned how James was one of those witnesses. James, the half-brother of Jesus. James and, and his brother Jude and other brothers. Th these are the ones that were totally skeptical of Jesus. They didn't actually believe that he was God's chosen king. They thought this guy's nuts, that he thinks he's the Messiah. And it wasn't until after his resurrection that they came to faith. So you can say that these guys who are praying, his brothers who are praying, these are converted skeptics. This is the group of people who are prioritizing corporate prayer and saying, God, we want to seek you because we believe you've given us a promise and your promise will come to pass. And I think it's important that we recognize even that their diversity would force them to do something. It would force them to keep their focus on who Jesus is and what he's promised. And this is what I've seen in the, gosh, almost 19 years that we've been a church. The more diverse we get, the more Jesus-centered we're forced to be. And that's a good thing. 
The more diverse we are ethnically, the more diverse we are, diverse, uh, we are socioeconomically, the more d- diverse we are, uh, even when it comes to church backgrounds, the more we're forced to say, let's keep this about Jesus. Let's keep our nose in the book, our knees on the ground, and say, Lord, we want this to be about you. It's a good thing. It's a God-glorifying thing. And they wanted to glorify God by prioritizing corporate prayer. But also look at verse 14. The way Luke describes their prayer meeting. I love this. It says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and the Mary and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. With one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. The word for devoting is a word that means to be almost to be addicted to. They were just kind of, this was it. This was the non-negotiable. We got to seek God together. And this one accord is more than just, they weren't driving a Honda, just put it that way, okay? But this one accord, that's an old joke, I guess, didn't really work. The, the one accord means, listen, they were all praying towards the same things. This is more than a kind of a typical prayer meeting that we experience. Let's pray for, for Aunt Esther's, you know, you know, ingrown toenail or something. Now, let me, I don't want to make it any mistake here. Jesus cares about Aunt Esther's ingrown toenail. He really does. And we can pray to him about these things. But this was more than that. This was them saying, Lord Jesus, you made a promise. You're, you're, you're doing something radical in this world. And you told us to wait until we're endued with this power from on high to, to do the work that you're wanting to do. And Lord, we want to pray that direction. We want to pray in this kind of worshipful dependence. Where, we, Lord, we love you and we trust you and we believe what you want to do is the best thing for us to do. And we are dependent upon you to do it. We need you to do it. Guys, this is what we mean when we talk about prioritizing corporate prayer. It means that we're saying, Lord, we, 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 we love you, we trust you, and we need you to do what only you can do in our midst. That's why we pray. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here. I'm going to assume that most of us here, and I don't know every single person here super well, but I'm going to assume that most of us here that profess faith in Jesus, that our personal prayer lives are doing okay. I'm going to make a big assumption that our personal prayer lives are doing okay. In other words, we, we prayerfully read the, the, the scriptures on a regular basis. We, we, we pray and, and ask God to help us in our daily walks. Uh, I'm assuming that our personal prayer lives are okay. But listen, This is about corporate prayer. This is about prioritizing corporate prayer. One of the mistakes that we make in our Western church culture is we emphasize the personal over the corporate, the private over the corporate. And and, and the way God looks at us is not just as individual believers. He does do that. He values us as individuals. But he looks at us as a unit. So Servant Church, those of you who call Servant Church your home, how are we doing with our corporate prayer? Let's be honest. I'm so thankful for the few that commit every Sunday morning to pray for service. I'm so thankful for the even fewer that come to the Friday morning Zoom prayer meeting. I'm so thankful for the way we pray for one another at house groups. But I, I'll be honest, I, I grieve over the fact that we as a church don't seem to prioritize corporate prayer. 
And it makes me wonder, do we actually believe that God wants to do something with us corporately? Do we believe that God has a desire to grow and empower and utilize Servants Church to reach Norwich with the gospel? Do we believe this? Are we so consumed with our ingrown toenails that we've become ingrown and we're so just thinking about ourselves that we don't take time to pray? Now listen, one of the reasons we have people pray up front is, is for, especially for those of you who maybe have never prayed out loud, you're not sure how to pray, we have a, a, a diverse group of people praying up front because one, we want to be praying. We want to actually take that time to pray as a, as a body, as a church family. But also listen, it's so that if you don't know how to corporately pray or publicly pray, you get a sense of, okay, well, I could do that. I could pray like that. I, I, oh, I see. Oh, he's praying for us, and he's praying for the world, and he's praying for the, the needs of those that are suffering in our midst. Okay, I, I, I could do that. It's to teach you how to pray. Folks, every time we talk about prayer, all of us feel a little bit guilty, don't we? Because we know we kind of fall short. This is not about guilt. This is about promise. This is about us knowing that God has so promised us, God so desires to do more than we can ask or think that we say, you know what, Lord, because that's true, we want to pray. We want to prioritize prayer. We want to wait on you, Lord, to do what only you can do, and you tell us to wait on that by prioritizing this corporate prayer. Let's look at, again, some, some gospel verses about how the disciples were motivated. Because here's what we see about the disciples. We can believe that it was Jesus' character that gave them confidence to pray in the first place. Jesus had just taught them uh, during the, the upper room discourse. Remember we talked about that last week, how Jesus spent the, his last night before he was crucified unpacking a lot of really important things to his disciples, specifically about the work of the Holy Spirit. But listen to a couple things that Jesus said about prayer during that discourse. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then later on he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Now listen to why Jesus chose his disciples. Listen to why Jesus chooses you. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give it to you. Do you see what Jesus is teaching his disciples? Do you see what Jesus is teaching us? He's saying, listen, you should prioritize prayer because I'm going to be glorified by working through you by the power of my Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to work in us to make much of Jesus to everyone around us, and he's going to do that as we abide and as we pray. Lord, do it. The promise isn't an excuse not to pray. It's a motivation to pray. God, you're going to do it. But also, listen, Jesus' promises also directed their prayers. In Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus is talking about how we find restoration within God's people, how do we confront and restore? One of the things he said in verse 19 of chapter 18 of Matthew, he said, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything and earth, about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Does that mean that we can just pray for whatever we want and we can be guaranteed we get whatever we want? 
yes and no. It means we can pray for whatever we want. I pray for wants all the time. And I trust God's spirit to show me, John, that's just a want, it's not a need. I don't want you to ask for that. Or to say, wait. Or to say, you got it, here it is. I pray for wants all the time. But actually the motivation here is more than that. It's about praying in a way that lines up our wants with God's wants. Our desires with God's desires. And as we pray and we say, God, we want this. We, 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 I think we're getting it, Lord. We're getting what you're wanting to do, and we want this. So we're going to pursue you for this. Guess what? Jesus says, it's going to happen as you pray. I wonder if that makes some of you guys nervous. Some of you might have come out of what we might call hyper-charismatic backgrounds or what is known as the prosperity gospel, and you might go, I don't really want that anymore. And John, it sounds like you're sneaking that direction. Or maybe you've never been a part of that, but you know what that can do. And you go, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what Jesus plainly says. I'm talking about us being the kind of people that wait on the Lord. Because we love the Lord and we want him to do what we can't do for ourselves. I think we read this verse last week too, but I'll read it again. Luke chapter 11, verse 13, where Jesus says, If you then who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? When you feel the pressure of, of wanting to be a good witness and knowing you're not, when you feel the burden to, to minister to another need and you feel like I've got nothing left to give, where do you go? Do you go to God and say, God, help me? Do you go to your brothers and sisters and saying, there's this need and I, I, I just feel like I can't do it, but would you pray with me that we can know how God wants to meet this need and turn to God in corporate believing prayer in worshipful dependence and saying, Lord, would you do this? This is what waiting on the Lord looks like. Some of you wish Servant's Church was just a little bit different. Oh, I like this, but if it was just also this. And some of the things you wish that were different are good things. And so you're waiting, but not like this. You're just kind of going, well, someday maybe. Or you kind of slip in your little agenda here and slip in your little agenda there. What if we just said, Lord, what is it you want to do? We want to pray according to your word, your will, and see you do what you want to do. What do you think God might do? I have to say, I am so stirred about outreach. I'm just really stirred about the fact that we live in a city that's 97% unchurched. I'm stirred that we all have neighbors that don't know Jesus. And I'm stirred because I find my life is so consumed with just sort of making sure that what we need to do here as a church happens. And that is a, a glorious responsibility. I'm thankful for it. But I'm stirred by the fact that the whole reason we're meant to gather together is to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. And God's saying to us right now, here's where you are. You're waiting for me to do more. Wait like this. Pray corporately. Now, talking about this, 
seems like, yeah, that's obvious, John. I kind of figured you'd say something like that. We read the verses, yeah, they all prayed. We should be praying. I get it. This next bit is a bit that I've found in my experience a lot of people haven't really thought of. This, this choosing of a replacement for Judas, what's this got to do with waiting? So let's, let's unpack this together, okay? Because what I really want you guys to see is part of us waiting on the Lord is recognizing apostolic authority. One of the reasons we struggle in prayer is because we don't recognize apostolic authority. You're going to have no idea what you're talking about. You will. Just follow me. We pick it up in verse 15. What does it say? It says, In those days Peter stood up. So in the midst of the time they're praying, Peter stood up among the brothers. There's about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now here's what we're going to see. First and foremost, we're going to see that the apostles saw themselves as those who exercised authority among the people and above over the people. The apostles did that. Apostles did that, okay? Just, I'm talking about these specific 11 guys. They did this. Peter stands up among them, okay? Now, we can't forget that these guys, especially as we get through Acts and we see them doing radical things, these guys were normal knuckleheads like us. They really were. This is exactly what Paul said to 1 Corinthians. You guys remember this? Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the, uh, the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose, that, uh, the things, chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. You look at the disciples and you think, Lord, really them? But you should look at yourself and go, Lord, really me? We should see ourselves in the same kind of boat. These were normal men, ordinary men chosen for an extraordinary purpose. That's important to understand, okay? But also, listen, these were men who were devoting themselves to prayer with other Jesus followers. They were setting that example, devoting themselves to prayer with other Jesus followers. I was really thankful that we, uh, that the, this morning as we're praying, that uh, almost half the people that were praying were elders, Lord, let it, or elder candidates. Lord, let that continue. May we grow. Elders, let's, let's exhort each other on that. Let's keep seeking the Lord together. We have lovely times of prayer together in our meetings, but let's, let's set a tone, let's set an example for that. But they, 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 they exercise authority over and among but also, Peter starts us off by saying, listen, he says, the scripture must be f- fulfilled. Here's what we see about the apostles. They are submitted to both the inspiration and the authority of scripture. In this case, it would have been the Old Testament scriptures. But they're submitted to that. Peter says plainly, scripture must be fulfilled. This is talking about authority. When we mean authority, we mean this way. It should be on the screen. Authority, a simple way to talk about the authority of Scripture is this. What God says must come to pass. That's the authority of Scripture. What God says must come to pass. So that means we, we are obligated to put ourselves under that authority. Say, so God, you rule through your word. Jesus himself said in John 10.35, Scripture cannot be broken and And in Mark chapter 13, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's the simplest way to talk about authority of Scripture. But also, Peter said, the Holy Spirit spoke 
by the mouth of David. This gives us a good way to look at inspiration. What do we mean by the inspiration of Scripture? Here's what we mean. We mean God said what he wanted to say through human vessels. Now, we talked not too many weeks ago about the gift of prophecy and how as, as, as a church that believes in the ongoing present work of God's Spirit, the, 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 even the sign, what they call the sign gifts or supernatural gifts of the Spirit, we believe that God still speaks through prophecy. But we also were clear, prophecy never has the authority or even the same kind of inspiration as the Scripture. The Scripture has the authority over prophecy so that when someone prophesies, someone says, I think the Lord's saying this to us or to you or whatever, that basically we weigh that up against the Scriptures. This is really important to understand. We will not, listen, we will not see God speak to us on authentic prophecies unless we have a high view of Scripture. We might see the enemy lie to us or the flesh take over, but we won't see authentic prophecy unless we're submitted to what the Scripture says and test those things according to the Scripture. See, see, this is what Peter actually believed in, in 1 Peter chapter 21, Peter would, or 2 Peter chapter, uh, verse 1, sorry, sorry, 2 Peter chapter, <laughs> chapter 1, verse 21, Peter would write this, he'd say, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came by the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Spirit and they spoke from God. This is why you see, listen, you see a parallel between Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. They both spoke in, 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 a, in a, an authoritative and final way. Whatever they spoke had authority for all God's people for all times. New Testament prophecy is a little bit different than that. But the point is this, listen, that these, uh, this apostolic authority was an authority that was submitted to both the inspiration and authority of Scripture. But also look at verses 18 and 19. In verse 18 and 19, a lot of your versions probably have these verses in parentheses, yeah? Where after verse, it says 18, there's a parenthesis, then after the, at the end of verse 19, there's a parenthesis. That's because this is not really, this is not Peter's narrative. What Peter's saying right now to the people who are in these prayer meetings, this is, this is Luke in, inserting his own narrative. This is Luke kind of giving some explanation for his non-Jewish non-Aramaic-speaking readers. That's why he gives the name Al-Kaldama, okay? So it's, 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 it's a parenthetical statement on purpose, all right? But it still teaches us something about how the apostles viewed authority. They recognized their authority was about providing an accurate and diverse um, testimony. Now, uh, again, we, we read this all together, speaking about Judas in some really graphic terms. Now, we want to compare this to what Matthew writes in Matthew 27 about the same thing. Notice. In Matthew 27, it should be on the screen, it says, In throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed, and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the, 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 the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took the council and they brought with them, uh, bought with them, the potter's field for a burial uh, place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, does that look exactly like what we see in the book of Acts? It doesn't. And this is one of the places that people who have actually read the Bible 
will say, hey, there's contradictions in Scripture. Lots of people say that. Have you ever had someone say to you, you can't trust the Bible, it's full of contradictions? Always ask them, can you show me one? Because nine times out of ten, they can't. They've never read anything. They just heard that rumor and believed it. But those who have read it, those who have looked for a contradiction, this is one of the ones that they point out. But here's what we know for a fact, okay? Both accounts claim that a field was purchased with money given to Judas. They both say that. Both confirm that the field was called the field of blood. And both confirm that Judas committed suicide and died horrendously. They both confirm that. Now, the fact they both confirm that, what does that show? It shows that, one, they're talking about the same event, and two, they're not, they're not kind of comparing notes. They're just each giving their perspective. This is one of the reasons why we actually trust the Scripture. Because the Scripture isn't just guys going, okay, let's get our story straight. How are we going to present this? No. This is, this is honest accounts of what happened. This is what we call, again, accurate and diverse testimony. Now, I'm not going to take the time today you want to know how these things can gel together, we can talk afterwards, okay? There's some really interesting ways that we can make these things gel together. But these accounts are not hard to make fit as one account. And in any court of law, when there's been an accident, a, a roadside accident or something, they get many different testimonies. You know why? Because they want to hear where they agree. They want to hear the main points and get a picture put together. They never just get, oh, we got one eyewitness, we don't need anybody else. They try to get as many eyewitnesses as possible to get the whole story. That's exactly what the scripture does. But this is an important part of apostolic authority. It's meant to provide an accurate and diverse testimony. So Luke gives us this parenthesis, and then we pick it back up in verse 20, where Peter quotes two psalms. And you get a sense that as Peter has taken us 10 days, Peter and these other 120 plus people are seeking God in corporate prayer, that Peter is taking time to meditate on the book of Psalms, which is a good thing for us to do while we're praying. And so here's what it says. Peter quotes two Psalms. He says, May his camp become desolate and let no one dwell in it. And he quotes a second Psalm, Let another take his office. Now both the Psalms he quotes are Messianic Psalms. In other words, Psalms that talk about the Messiah's office. They were seen as that even before Jesus came on the scene. But here's what's interesting. Peter interprets these two scriptures in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. In other words, what he does is he takes the scripture, he's submitted to its authority, he's submitted to its inspiration, he, he, he's wanting to, to provide an accurate and diverse testimony of how Jesus fulfills the scripture. And so when he reads the scripture, he wants to interpret it both practically and prophetically. Practically in that, I want to do what it says. Prophetically in that, that it's always about Jesus somehow. Do you understand this? This is really, really important. One of the reasons why I think we see not enough answers to our prayers, because our prayers have nothing to do with what God's promised. We, we just pray whatever we feel like praying. We pray whatever feels most important to us. Now, again, we have a good father who gives good gifts to his children, who inclines his ear to hear to us, so pray about everything. But if you really want to align yourself up with what God says, then you need to read the scriptures practically and prophetically. Lord, I want to do what this says, and I, and I, want, to, I want to understand how this points me to Jesus. This is, this is where... Where Peter gets this, okay? Uh, remember that this, 
the beginning of, of the book of Acts kind of overlaps the last chapter of Luke 24. Listen to this. It says, Then the resurrected Jesus says to the apostles, the disciples, it says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their, mouth, their minds sorry, to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So Luke tells us before they wait in Jerusalem for the coming upon of the Spirit, before that happens, Jesus has already opened their eyes to the Scriptures and given them the guidance of how they can understand what it means. This is really important for what's going on in the second part of, of Acts chapter 1. There are some really godly men who, who, uh, whom I've learned loads from that say, oh, you know what's going on here? What's going on here is the apostles are impatient. They're not waiting for the coming upon of the Spirit, and they're picking another, uh, you know, another apostle to replace Judas. And it's going to be really obvious that the apostle Paul is the one to replace him. And that's their argument. The apostles made a mistake. Really? Because the Scripture seems really clearly that Jesus calls these specific men for a very specific purpose and gives them... A responsibility. And Peter, who's leading this group, who, who Luke will uh, affirm is one of the main leaders. In fact, one of the things you'll see in the book of Acts is how Peter, or, or how Luke says, here's what Peter did, and here's how it parallels to what Paul did. These guys are leaders on the same level. But the point is, Paul is not the 12th disciple, the 12th apostle. And we know that because of, of how Peter deals with this. Look at verse 21. In verse 21, here's what we see, because this is really what this is about. When we talk about waiting being recognized in apostolic authority, apostolic authority is about protecting the accuracy and the integrity of the gospel. Look what it says in verse 21. Follow me. It says, So one of the men, Peter says, who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us. Did Paul do that? No, he didn't. And beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness uh, to his resurrection. Now, Paul could witness to the resurrected Christ as he said of himself, as one born out of due time. Paul did see the resurrected Christ. But what Peter's saying here is that the apostles had a very specific responsibility. They were to testify of all that Jesus did and said. They were to testify of all his teaching. They were to testify of, of, of his miracles. They were to testify of, of, of his death, of his resurrection, of his ascension. And so if they're going to be one of the 12, they have to have seen all of that. So when they bring two guys out of 120, it could be that only two guys were actually there all the time. Maybe they are two out of the 70 that Jesus had sent. But this is why they're there. This is important. It's important because this is why Peter's doing this. And this is important for us. If we're going to know what it means to wait on God. God, we want to wait for you. We, we want to be about your business because we want you to fulfill your promises to use us as you will. Then we have to recognize apostolic authority. 
Now, what's interesting is here, they do this by, we'll see, casting lots. Look at verse 23. It says, so they put forth these two, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and then Matthias. And they prayed. Here's how they prayed. You, Lord. Now, understand this. They're praying to Jesus, by the way. They're praying to Jesus. You don't pray to someone who's not God. They they recognize him as God. They pray to Jesus. They say, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judah turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among with the number with the eleven apostles. They cast lots. Now we don't know for sure what lots are. They could have been stones that had these two men's name in. They shook them in a jar, and the first guy to come out was the guy that they believe God chose. And it sounds like they're just kind of going for a random chance. But you know why we think that way? Because we've been so programmed by an evolutionary worldview. And I mean this. I'm not trying to sound like a some you know, like crazy person. It's just a fact. We, in the Western culture, we just assume evolution is the highest truth out there. And it's just not. There, there's, there's, it's true. Natural selection is true. And we can debate about the age of the earth and that kind of stuff. You can ask me what my opinion is after if you want to know. But, the, but here's the point. The point is, listen, the point is, the, the, the Bible testifies that life, creation, isn't random. That there's a God who's sovereign over all. That's what the Bible teaches. So, so listen to how the Bible talks about lots in the book of Proverbs, about how to live life skillfully. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It also says, the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. Now, does that mean we're going to start rolling the dice about decisions at Servants Church? So here's how we picked the elders. We said, okay, here, oh, here's all the men. Roll the dice. Oh, that one's out. Roll the dice. That one's in. That's not how it works, okay? The point is, what they're doing right here is they are recognizing we need Jesus to choose. We need him to choose who the apostle is, who is supposed to testify of these things. Now, Why? Because it's God and God alone who knows the hearts of men. Jeremiah chapter 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? God answers his own question. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. We even read this about Jesus in in John chapter 2. It says that Jesus didn't trust them. That's people. Because he knew all people. These were the people who wanted to uh, force him to become king. And because no one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. This is what the apostles are submitting to. They're protecting the accuracy and the integrity of the gospel by saying, Jesus, it's your church. You build it how you see fit. Do you guys want that in a church? Let me ask that again. Do you want that in a church? This is what we're pursuing. Got a long ways to go. I'll fully admit that. But this is what we're pursuing. We want Jesus to lead his church. See, this is what I mean when I say waiting on the Lord means we recognize apostolic authority. The elders are not the authority. The apostles' doctrine is the authority. This is why we take so much time to explain it as carefully as possible. I was having a conversation with Julian this morning. He's ushering this morning. And he's like, oh, I want to talk to you about this. I was, uh, 
I, I, I met someone, a friend of mine, and they said, hey, you should come to this Bible study. And we started listening to this Bible study. Make a long story short, he realizes after a couple of sessions, praise God, that Julian takes doctrine seriously, takes the Bible seriously. But he realizes it's a cult. He's being pulled into a group that denies the Trinity, denies the deity of Jesus. And he's like, whoa, and he bails. How, how do people get sucked into these things? They don't know apostolic authority. They don't recognize apostolic authority. That's how they get sucked into these things. See, here's what we're talking about. We're not just talking about, let's just pray until we have this powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. We want that, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, Lord, we want to believe everything you say, everything you've promised. We want you to lead your church, so we want to wait on you through corporate prayer, and we want to recognize we're going to test all things against this book. You guys following me? See, this wasn't about the apostles' authority. The apostolic authority isn't even about the apostles. It's really about the authority of the gospel that Jesus made them stewards of. But Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 1. He said, but even if we, that's we, me or the other apostles, even if we or an angel from heaven, by the way, Mormons got their false gospel from an angel of heaven. No offense if you're a Mormon, but that's the truth should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Because it's the gospel. It's the revelation that God gave to the apostles. It's the authority, not just the apostles themselves. That's why when people talk about apostolic succession, you may hear churches say, oh, but how does your church trace back to the apostles? Well, how does that work? I, feel, I heard your guys, your, your leader's a bald guy from California. How does he trace his lineage back to California? You know, no, this is the apostolic succession. That's what God says. That's what God says. Waiting looks like believers intentionally doing what the gospel says, submitting themselves to what it is. So let's talk about what Jesus has promised us in conclusion. Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he was arrested, he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If we live in Jesus, we say, Lord, I want to stay connected to you because in you alone there's life. In you alone there's forgiveness of sins. In you alone there's a right standing with the Father. I'm in you. And your words, Lord, your words that you give to the apostles... Keep that authority in us. We're, we're holding fast those things. We want to stick to what you say. Then we'll ask. We'll pray corporately, and you will do radical things. Church, do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants to do more than we're experiencing at Servants Church? I'm not, I'm not being unthankful or, or, or minimizing the good that God's doing in our lives right now. But do you believe that God wants to do more? And more isn't just about more numbers. More is about more fruit, knowing God more, loving God more, representing God better. Do you believe God wants to do this? Well, let's abide in him. Let his word abide in us and let's ask. Let's wait on God together. Watch what fruit he produces. Going back to Jacob. We started off this talking about Jacob. He worked seven years with stinky, smelly sheep because he loved Rachel. Here's what it says in Genesis 29. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love 
for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. His love was so strong. He worked seven years. I'm going to quote Jesus here. Can we not pray for an hour? Can we not seek after God and say, God, do what you want to do? Can we not take 15 minutes a day? And I know it's really hard, especially if you've got small kids, it's really hard to do this, but can't we take 15 minutes a day and say, God, I'm going to read one chapter of the New Testament and I'm going to pray this into me. I'm going to say, Lord, do this in my life. Imagine if we had the mindset that says, church starts at 10 o'clock instead of 1045, which is actually starts at 1030, by the way. Though most of you come at 1045. Church starts at 10 o'clock in that room praying for what God wants to do on a Sunday. Can we love the Lord enough to wait like this? Can we love the Lord enough to seek him in purposeful, like-minded prayer and to intentionally say, Lord, we're going to take you at your word. I am absolutely convinced as we do this, God's going to do above and beyond what we can ask or think.